0: Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Okay, here's the situation. Our daughter Mia is leaving for her first sleepover. We have friends coming to stay, and we just got a puppy. Hey everybody, quick webinar alert. This Wednesday, 7 o'clock, I'm breaking down a Broadway advertising and marketing campaign. You'll find out all the types of media that go into show marketing and also how we choose the type of media we use to sell tickets. This Wednesday, 7 o'clock, get all the information on the blog at theproducersperspective.com. Now on with the podcast. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. I want to be Please welcome to the podcast three-time Tony Award winning, you can't get more A-list than him, Mr. Jack (laughs) O'Brien. Welcome, Jack. Is that all hyphenated? I guess it is hyphenated. Yes, I had to hyphenate every single one. I can. Great to be here. So Jack has done it all. I'm not going to waste too much time with a list of his credits because I have so many questions. But everything from The Full Monty to Hairspray to Costa Utopia and It's Only a Play. Thank you very much for that one. And a billion other things in between, including lots of Shakespeare, opera. He was also the artistic director of The Old Globe. Just a few days ago, he opened the front page uh, on Broadway. Uh, He's actually prepping one of the biggest and most anticipated musicals to open this year, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, which I'm super excited about. Me too. It was one of the first shows I dreamed about getting the rights to. Really? Oh, yeah. I pitched it to Hal Prince like I was a 20-year-old, saying, like, I want to produce. Good for you. And what did he say? He said it was a great idea, but you're never going to get the rights to that, so try something a little smaller. Where were the rights? Oh, God knows. They at were that in the time. Dallas State. Oh with
1: the Dollar State, yeah. yeah. And yeah. that's now become, you know,
0: Bloomingdale's. That's right. that's right. But we're very thankful that's in your capable hands this spring. Very excited about it. So let's go back. How did you start directing? Where did where did it begin for you?
1: Losing my hair. Seriously. Casey
0: like, Nikolaff said the same thing. Did he really? I swear to you, said I bet the that's same true. thing because he was an actor first. Sure, so was I. I was
1: a musical comedy baby at the University of Michigan with a voice that shattered glass, as they say. And, and, and the thing that's fascinating to me, and I, I was listening, I was somebody the other night, and there was a recording of Merman who came on saying, there's no business, you know. And I thought, God, there's never been a voice like that. And there will never be a voice like it again. But the truth of that and Mary Martin and probably Jolson is that they were, not that they were great voices, they were trick voices. You could hear them at the back of the theater. And when I was in college, I saw Mary Martin in Sound of Music. I stood in the back when I was, you know, a sophomore or something, and heard her sing without a microphone from the back, my day in the hills, right to the back of the Fontaine, And I I mean, the hair went up in the back of my neck. I couldn't believe it. Because she had that kind of voice. Well, I had those voices. I could have been a contender again. And so, uh, because I could really nail it. But then uh, the beetles were going, coming in and my hair was going out. And I thought I'd had this niche for my mind. Uh, I thought, I'm going to be the next gig young, the, best, the guy's best friend, right? And then uh, I realized, no, Jack, you aren't. <laughs> Meanwhile, I had fallen under the spell of the APA repertory company that was the resident company at the University of Michigan where I was studying. And I had never seen a theater like this in my life. Elegant, beautiful deeply felt, wildly creative, very highly theatricalized work. And I was like, it was like being fed ginger ale all your life, and then suddenly somebody gave you champagne. And I thought, oh, I think I'll go there. And I did. I followed basically them to New York, knocked on the door until they took me in. I became Ellis's assistant. I walked the dog. I did flat work. I I got groceries. I did whatever I could to become indispensable. And little by little, worked myself up the ladder to become the monster sitting across from you today. But literally, but there I was getting the postgraduate sort of career of my generation. There was Alan Schneider, Ava Legallion, John Houseman, Stephen Porter, Ellis Rabb. Those were my mentors. They taught me. I took their notes. I learned to give notes in the style of each of them so that the company wouldn't know which of them was out front. I couldn't give a Stephen Porter note to an Ellis Rabb production because people would know that's not right. So it it, it gave me this extraordinary perspective. By this time, I thought I was going to be a lyricist because I was writing music and lyrics in college and then teamed up with jazz artist Bob James, who's still a great Grammy Award winning Warner Brothers artist. And we wrote some musicals, and they weren't very good. Um, well, they actually were good, but we got killed with the selling of the president in the early 70s. And, you know, it's an interesting thing about failure. You Some failures teach you not to go there again. Some failures teach you to get up and fight. And I don't know why, but the failure, which was very painful, of the selling of the president, where we closed in five days at the Schubert Theater. I couldn't go back there again. And meanwhile, I was also this baby director toddling around, you know, following Ellis. And I went from there to, the, to San Diego, where I did my first Shakespeare in 1969. And one thing led to another. And here I
0: am on your show. On my show. So I talked, just told you the little story about how Prince gave me this great advice. And you had such great mentors. Do you remember any pearls of wisdom that any of those folks said to you back in the day about the theater, about directing? I do advice? I
1: do remember lots of things that Ella said. I mean, I can't call up one of them now, but I do remember listening to him direct and realizing what you should do and what you should not do, that you didn't ever give a line reading. You never, you never said, do it this way. Or in my beloved friend Jerry Mitchell, the choreographer I worked with a lot, let me be you, Jerry would say, which is a you know a great phrase for a choreographer because that's the way they demonstrate that A director doesn't do that; you can't possibly do that. So, but I remember Hausman saying to me because I I was so eager and earnest, and he had just launched the acting company, which Patty LuPone and Kevin Klein and all those kids who had gr- graduated from Juilliard they went on the road, and I went out with them on the bus to sort of keep them apart and ameliorate and quiet them down and speak philosophy and t- teach them meditation and all those things that young people need to know. And I loved it. I loved being part of a company. I'd, I had grown up that way. And I went to Houseman, and I said, you should make, you should give this, give this to me. Let me be the artistic director. You're not going to do it. And John said the stunning phrase that I'll never forget. He said, no, I can't give you the company. I can't raise a dime on you. You must go away and make your international reputation. So along with the crushing defeat that I was not going to become the artistic director of the acting company were two really interesting pieces of information. John Houseman thought me capable of an international career. That never occurred to me. And the logic that he had to raise money on me but that I didn't have a reputation made great sense to me. And so, yeah, there's a, there's two pieces of pearl wisdom for you.
0: I want you to imagine you're sitting in Omaha, Nebraska at a bar somehow. You land there and you saddle up to someone sitting next to you who doesn't know the first thing about what we do. And they say, what do you do for a living? And you say, I direct plays and musicals. And they say, what's that? What does a director do? How would you describe it?
1: Well, basically, I just pay for the beer and leave the bar immediately, wouldn't you? <laughs> who wants to hear that story? Well, I'm certainly not going to get laid that night. That's, that's another thing for sure. What do I do? I, I, you know what? Truth to tell, less and less as I get older. When I started out directing, I thought it was about blocking. I assumed that I would be asked where people should go on the stage and, and you know, where's the drink cart so they could go get a drink because I wouldn't know what else to tell them to do. And I remember one of the first jobs I had was in stock. I had Tammy Grimes and Jan Sterling on the road in a play called The Warm Peninsula, a sweet little play about Florida. And Tammy, who was a star at the time, no question about it, Molly Brown and all the rest of it, she was having an affair with her tennis coach, as I remember, so she came late to rehearsal. And I got ready to direct her, and I said, Tammy, you come in up there through that door. She said, no, no, I won't. I said, okay, well, then you'll come in over there through the windows. Through the No, I won't do that. And I said, well, the other, other door, honey, is the bathroom. So you've got to choose one of them. But I realized that my well-laid plans went out the window. And what I had to do was meet these people head on with love and affection and, and certainly respect and frankly take care of them and that's sort of what i've been doing all my life i think i think it's i think a lot of craft comes into it and i'm sure i've absorbed a great deal over the years but i try not to show that i think if i the best work that i do you would not notice the best work that i do that's my job stay out of the way be the, be a great friend to the actor and a great greater friend to the writer and try to be as inconspicuous as possible look i've done some showy stuff in my day And I ain't through yet. But that's when it's called for. But basically what I'm probably there is to engender truth and be as kind as
0: possible. What's your process as a director? You get a new play or a musical. What's the first thing you do? I read it and read it and read it and read it. I just read it.
1: And as I read it, I see things in my head. I get an idea. I can't explain why, but I do. An image will come to me or... A moment will come to me, and I'm somewhat suspicious of them, but I listen to them, I let them sort of germinate, and I keep reading the play. I mean, it's Tom Stoppard, good luck. I mean, he spoon-fed quantum physics into me. Do you really think I knew what quantum physics... I have no idea what quantum physics... Is. I still don't, but I knew enough by the time we went into rehearsal for a half good that I could make sense out of the play. But I also saw what I could bring to the play, which was... Sometimes blood, sometimes sex, sometimes passion. I really think that's why we go to the theater, whether we know it or not. The extraordinary thing is that some people are going to stand very close, as close, or not quite as close as we are to each other. But sometimes, yes. And they're going to, in fact, try to convince us that it's happening. That's not television. That's not film. It's right there. And so whether or not you know it, you want it to teach you something you want the extraordinary lavishness of having a living human being standing in front of you going through something very like life even if they're teasing it is quite remarkable and it changes the chemistry in the room that you know we keep saying there's no such thing as a bad audience yes there is there is you can be in the In theater with a bad audience where they just don't want to be there. And the next night, it can be lightning in a bottle. And it may never happen again.
0: So I'm for those nights when it happens. So you talk about reading and reading the play over and over again. How do you, when you're reading to decide whether or not you want to do one. For example, look, I called your agent a few years ago and was like, hey, is Jack, would he be interested in so-and-so? And And they were like, oh, well, I can ask him, just so you know, he isn't available for three years because you're so in demand and so busy. So when you're reading something, what makes you go, oh, this one, I'm going to do
1: this one? It's really simple, Ken. If it touches me or makes me laugh, it's my material. If I don't feel anything, if I admire it, but it doesn't move me, if I find myself tearing up, if I found myself suddenly laughing, I think, oh, this is my street. I live on this street. But if I don't, even if it's something really delicious, and this has happened to me, where somebody says, you know, they want you to do blah, 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 blah. And you think, wow, this is going to be great. And you read it and you think, I, "I, yeah, could I do it? Probably. I have enough craft to do that. But I don't anymore. I just don't. I know it's not true. I it either; it has to make me bleed
0: or make me howl,
1: in, either in pain or laughter. Then I'm fine. I, I'm, I know I can get you home.
0: You talk about the how tough it was for the failure of the show that you wrote early on. Obviously, not all shows can go on to be big hits. Is there an example of a show that you felt, oh God, I want to do this, I have to do this, that didn't work out for you? Yes. And how did you feel after that? How do you get over that now? You have to decide whether it's your
1: fault. I mean, in the case of Impressionism, a play that I did several years ago with Jeremy Irons. Everybody read the play, everybody who read the play loved the play. Loved it. Wanted to do it. I I thought, yes, this is I, I passed it around to a couple of friends. They thought it was fabulous. I made a very big mistake. I thought it should have an intermission. And I said to Scott Pass, my designer, when we did it, I said, you know, Joan Allen was had not been on the stage for a while. There's Joan coming back with Jeremy. That's going to be good. It was not a lot of people. My dear friend Marsha Mason had a role in it. I was in pig heaven. I said, I'm not sure about this. I think after Jeremy's big scene, we need to have an intermission. It wasn't written with one. And we got into previews, and it was wrong. You could see that at the intermission, the audience was confused. The author, he was basically a television writer. He is, he'd done a lot of work on television.
0: Michael Jacobs.
1: Michael Jacobs, yeah. And a sweet man, very sweet man. And a really good writer. And he wrote phenomenally good things for television. What I didn't realize was that he packed all of the denouement at the end of a single arc. And by breaking the rhythm in the middle... By taking it too seriously, I interrupted the flow. I said to Scott Pass, the designer, "If I want to mend this, if I've decided I'm wrong, can we fix it quickly?" He said, "Absolutely. We, we do this, this, and this, and you're home free." So we went through some previews. We realized it was not right; was not working. I said, "I need to. I need to fix it." We fixed it that afternoon, and we played the unbroken play to the end, and people were having a wonderful time. But in the period of time when we canceled the opening and had to reschedule the critics, was two weeks, during which time the internet perceived we were in trouble. And so it was out there that Impressionism was in trouble. Was it a good play? Yeah, actually it was a good play. Was it a really good play? No. But it was certainly an entertainment, and the two of them were charming. Jeremy, uh, you know, Jeremy's always nothing less than mesmerizing. And Joan was incandescent as she is her stock and trade. She does that beautifully. And there was, it was really sort of sweet. It was okay. We, we should have gotten maybe three quarters of a season out of it. Because what it wasn't was a bomb. But by the time they came in to sit down, they had heard we were in trouble. And when that little bull weevil gets through the cranium in a critic's mind or an audience's mind, you're dead in the water. I hold myself responsible for that. I still do. I should have seen that I was doing a self-conscious show-offy thing. And I'm sorry I did that. That's the only time that I can think of. And there have been some other stinkers, let's face it. I mean, it has small bed
0: roses, maybe.
1: But that's, that one sort of lingers because I felt I let everybody down.
0: And how do you pick yourself up when, when one of those stinkers happens? Do you just go on and do it again? Does it affect you as much as it used to?
1: This is a tricky, interesting question. Of course, it, Of course it affects me. I mean, the interesting thing about the reviews or the reception is, you know, you only remember the bad reviews. You don't remember the good ones. You can quote the bad ones but you can't remember any of the good ones. I do remember one that John Simon said when I was still in San Diego, when I did do Shakespearean Act. He gave me a glowing review, which was rare. And I can still quote that one because John Simon said it. And he wasn't famous for saying beautiful things about people. So I was very proud of that one. But yes, you do feel it. You do feel it. But the truth of the matter is it's what I do. You know, my sainted mother used to say of life, speaking in terms of, contract bridge, there's not game in every hand. Doesn't mean you're not going to play bridge just because you didn't, you know, kill with that contract. So, uh, and I'm very glad, I mean, you want to know the truth? Okay, I'll tell you the truth. The truth is, I expect that this door will open and several, either FBI or CIA people will come in, pick me up by the shoulders, take me out, and I'll say, what have I done? And they said, you have duped people, For the better part of 40 years, you're not very gifted. And now we're going to... And I would think, oh, yeah, okay, you're probably right. They're wrong. I know, I know. But what I'm saying is I don't think what I do is very extraordinary. I think what I do is... I'm fond of saying I've never worked a day in my life because I love it so much.
0: And that's true. What I love about your career is your desire, as well as your talent, to direct such a diversity of material from It's Only a Play to Coast of Utopia to pear spray. If you could only choose one type of show to direct for the rest of your career, play, musical, revival of a play, revival of a musical, what would you choose? Which one are you drawn to the most?
1: Well, I can't. I can't. I've never been able to do that. I'm Clearly, I've never been able to do that. And it has been my great good fortune. I don't know if it's just because I was an artistic director for 25 years in which case, you're in the barnyard picking up the calf every day. Somebody's got to lift the calf. So, by the time it comes to slinging bull, you really can do it. You know, you've done a lot. But, uh, and that gave me a, a lot of latitude. I mean, sometimes I had to do pieces that I did, I had chosen for other people. They canceled at me and I had to do the play and I learned a great deal. I I didn't think I was going to have a good time with it, but I had a great time with it. Or I learned something about it. So that's been lucky. I don't know. It's a hard one. I'm tempted to say I would do Shakespeare for the rest of my life Mm -hmm. because it never goes stale. But you never get it right either. So the nice thing about a varied career is if you're doing something like it's only a play, which is adorable and a boulevard comedy, and you have great people doing it, you give them a whale of an need. I mean, the critics were very irritated with us because we had we were selling tickets like crazy. And the audience was screaming with great fun, and it was good. But they, but you know, we don't value comedy in this country. We don't. And I'm a big. I get very, very angry about that. I think one of the most amazing things in life is to make a room of strangers laugh at the same instant. People who not only do not know each other, don't want to know each other. And they're sitting there. And for one instant, they all exhale air at the same time and make a voluntary noise. Now, if I do a serious play and you're moved, you could be moved in many different ways. You could cry. You could tear up. You could be sad. You could be wistful. You could float away. You could do a lot of different things. But you can only laugh one way. And I think that's a miracle. And I think it's interesting that because it's light entertainment, we call that, it's not valued. But I think comedy, very often, is harder to achieve than a not very good dramatic evening that is slightly sentimental. So there.
0: You've got a lot of credits on your IBDB page. I want you to imagine this is one of my James Lipton questions. Ready? Want you to imagine the Smithsonian? I'm trying
1: to remember you. I'm trying to think of you as James Leptin, and it isn't working. Uh, Jack.
0: (laughs) Yes. uh, Yes. Yes. uh, If the Smithsonian Institute calls you and says, "Jack, we have room for one of your productions in the institute to preserve forever for future generations to see," but only one. Which of all the shows you've done would you want them to preserve? Well, that's like that's Sophie's choice. You have a harder choice because you got a choice about eight hundred thousand different shows.
1: I'm tempted. To say Porgy and Bess, it was the piece that launched me. I was the last person hired and the whitest person you've ever seen in your life. I was approaching a great African-American classic that had only been in the hands of very controlling, very opinionated white interpreters. I didn't know anything about it, except that it moved me enormously. I had buried my parents, my father at least by that time, and I had buried my mother No, I don't think so. can't remember. But I loved and lost. I knew about love and I knew about death. How different can we be? And I asked all the people in their company questions. I asked them to help me, basically. And no one had ever asked that question of them. So they poured their hearts out to me. And it was the kind of education that most people never get. The scales fell from my eyes in many, many ways. And I loved it. I I thought... Of all the pieces I've ever done, I was sorry it wasn't preserved on film. Uh, By the time they got ready to do that, Trevor Nunn had done a celebrated version for Glyndebourne. Leonora Gershwin was still alive, Ira Gershwin's widow. She went with the Brits, as almost everybody does, much to my chagrin. And his was put on television and ours went away. Uh, Trevor did a lovely job, but he made an understandable European decision that the piece was about the major characters, but the piece is about the community. It's about a community of peace. Very simple, very, very beautiful people living together and trying to survive. And he had got it backwards, as far as I'm concerned. And I'm, so of all the great opportunities I've had and the wonderful experiences I've had, that is the one I think that, I, that hurts the most.
0: You obviously have this incredibly collaborative experience with actors. I got to see it with It's Only a Play, and you talk about asking the company of Porgy and Bess for help. Does it differ, that process, when you're working with big stars that you may not get as much time with, you may not audition, they have these big reputations coming in? How is the process different when you're working with big A-listers?
1: I don't think it does differ. I think that's the job. I have to stop seeing you as a big A-lister, and I have to see past your defenses, past your persona, past your confidence, past your agent, past your lover, to the person—the frightened child inside who simply wants to be somebody else. I've got to somehow contact him, or we're dead. And I don't care who you are. We can't do it alone. I can't do it alone, and you can't do it alone. I find the older I get, the more I tell the truth. And I find it's painful. And sometimes it's hurtful. And you have to be very careful with the truth because it's your truth, not just the truth. So you can be very heavy handed and still be right. You have to learn how to do that with love. And then I think you're fine. Then you're in it together. If you're in it together, what's the problem?
0: talk a little bit about your relationship with producers. You obviously worked with a whole bunch of them over the years. You were an artistic director, which I believe is a producer, really. Yes, I'm credited with being a producer a lot in my
1: by which is not true. I mean, The Globe produced several of August Wilson's pieces in that extraordinary journey that they took across America before they came to New York. And and I was listed as a producer. So I have this producing credit that I want to put my hand
0: up and say, ah, teacher, teacher, not me. I didn't do it. We won't tell the soul. Thank to you very all much. The, we'll keep it very quiet. Our Thank secret. You. If you could get all the Broadway producers in a room and tell them one thing, what would you tell them? Go home. No, I wouldn't say that to all of
1: them. I mean, look, the job has changed, Ken. The job has changed from where I started to what it is now. Regional theater has changed. In the time that I was at the Globe, when I walked in and when I walked out, the entire, I mean, when, when Into the Woods came to the Globe at its tryout, all of regional theater changed with that one moment. Because suddenly we were not basically the hinterlands, we were basically a birthing channel. And that changed everybody's attitude about it. The job has changed. There have always been sort of monsters Jed Harris, a name to be reckoned with. Read that biography and then read what people say about him. David Merrick, another one. There's Billy Rose. These were showmen. These were charlatans. These were hawkers. These were, these were mountebanks. These were geniuses. They had a vision. They, they did anything they could to get their show on, to get the money together. To make love to the leading lady if she was lonely. To pry the drink out of the leading man's hands if he was drunk. They did it all. And now, you know, that sense of participation is drifted quite far, just as with artistic directors in theaters. They don't want me anymore. They want a businessman who will bring in money so that contributed income is less important where they want us to make it at the box office. And late in my career at the Globe, I was saying to people, look, if I wanted to make it at the box office, I'd work in New York. I'm not doing this for that. They didn't like hearing that. They understood it, but it was a little cheeky of me to say it. So I, I have a little trouble coming down or even testifying about what producers should or should not do. Because they are very different kinds of people coming with different expectations. At the moment, I'm working with Scott Rudin for the first time, who did the front page. And we're, we're working on another piece immediately. And it's, he's in that tradition of showman. He's, he's big and brave, and he's got great taste. And he puts his money where his mouth is, and he takes huge risks. And I'm all about risk. Because without risk, there is nothing. If, if you're taking this easy way out, you've got a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. You are not going to get the big, exciting highs if you don't take the net down and fling yourself into open space.
0: I feel like the curtain should come down at this, but I've got a couple more questions I have to ask. So We'll go to the dressing room. <laughs> or I'll pour you a drink. <laughs> Please. As you, you've seen a lot of things on Broadway, off-Broadway, you've seen Times Square change as you walk through Times Square now and see all these marquees and the shows in them and the artists in them. How do you think we're doing? What do you think about Broadway today, the state of the state?
1: Well, I worry that we don't make stars anymore. I mean, uh, if, if I permitted this observation, we get a title, and then basically people go shopping for a name That people want to see, which is usually a television name, more than than even a film name. It used to be we would create stars. Judy Holliday was the understudy in Born Yesterday. And what was her name, that divine woman with the broken voice? Anyway, she was the leading actress. And they went to Boston with, with it. And Jean Arthur, thank you very much. Wow, saved it. I didn't have a stroke. How thrilling. Jean Arthur, who had terrible stage fright. And panicked and said she couldn't do it. And they were opening in three days in Boston. And Garson Kanin took Judy Holliday, the understudy, into the room and said, "Learn it." And she learned it. And she was a star. And then they built her career. We don't ha- we don't do that anymore. And when you look at the people whose reputations have been made basically on the stage, Nathan is one of them. Patty LuPone is another. Christine Ebersole is another. I mean, it does happen. I think Jesse Mueller may be one on the way up, depending on what, what the string, the next string brings her. You know, we, we don't carry them forward and make them what was once considered to be a big star. We go shopping for somebody who's just done a great HBO series, and they come in and they headline for 14 to 16 weeks. But, you know, at her height... Helen Hayes, with whom I worked at a- with APA at the end of her life, Miss Hayes, we were rehearsing, we were rehearsing in rep at APA, and she was playing Mrs. Cander in School for Scandal, and she was playing Signora Frola in Right You Are If You Think You Are, and she was playing a terrible piece called We Comrades Three, and she was sitting backstage, and she said to me, "You know, at the height of my career." I played three parts in 12 years. Two years on Broadway with Dear Brutus, two years on the road. Two years on Broadway with uh, what every woman knows, two years on the road. Two years on Victoria Regina on Broadway, two years. And then two years she took it on the road. uh, You know, in 12 years, at the height of her career, she played three parts and she was a huge star. We didn't have television then, so that's how they became stars. As I say, the whole industry's changed, so now we look for a light bulb to plug in to the marquee that will make enough light to bring people from all over. And you can only get them for 14 to 16 weeks. I contend you can't have new stars in 14 to 16 weeks. Or if so, you make it, and then they go back to California again, to their other life. And that's very sad to me. So... I maybe that's what I'd say to the producers. I've come late to that idea. in The
0: dressing, at the risk of making your agent's phone ring off the hook, is there anything that you haven't done that you're still dying to do? It doesn't have to be something specific either. It can just be a. I want to do a play in a tent. Like, no, no, I don't want to do a play in a tent.
1: <laughs> uh, I don't think I want to do a play in a tent. I, you know, I'm having a wonderful time. Just a wonderful time. I mean, I had 25 years at the Globe. And one of the reasons I left when I left was that I thought, gee, I've, I've done a lot of these plays two and three times, the Shakespeare's even. And I've sort of done everything I wanted to do in that respect. So things come along. Of course they do. And you're lucky to get them. But the truth of the matter is you don't count on that. And I'm at the point right now where I'm so grateful that I'm still employable. I can't believe it. I cannot believe that I'm booked for the next two years. I just can't believe it. And I'm so grateful. I'm having a wonderful time. I love the projects. I love the people I'm doing them with. I just don't want to wake up.
0: All right, my last question, another James Lipton-like question. You're such a wonderful, congenial man. You have love for people and the industry pouring out of you. Now, I want to find out what makes you mad by asking you my genie question. I want you to imagine the genie from Aladdin comes to see you knocks on your door and says, Jack, I want to thank you for the incredible contributions to the American theater that you've made. By granting you one wish, what's the one thing about Broadway that drives you crazy, that gets you so mad, that could have you pounding on this table, jumping up and down, throwing things around the room that you'd ask this genie to wish away in an instant?
1: I'm going to answer that with great pleasure. But if you'd stopped with the genie just saying, Jack, I want to give you something... I was going to conclude this interview by saying hair.
0: Uh, just, for the, just for the full just circle. for the full circle.
1: Jeannie, give me my head of hair and I'll be out of your life.
0: You wouldn't direct anymore. That would no, be very bad no, for no. all of us.
1: Well, maybe not. The truth of the matter is ticket prices. I can't believe it. I cannot believe that anything I've ever done. I went to a play last night. Was it last night? Was this week? I paid $149 to see a play that I'm slightly embarrassed to say I walked out on, only because I was tired and disappointed because of certain if, if situations in my own personal life that it was very, it was very painful. And I, didn't, I couldn't be dishonest. I just couldn't do it. I paid $149 for an act. And I thought, you know, it's, it's not fair. Who are we doing these plays for? I look at the, uh, the audience and they're elderly people with some of them stumbling down the, you know, with walkers and all. It's like lords going in there, you know. And I don't see young people. I don't see enough people of color. I don't see uh, 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 enough diversity. I, I don't know who we're doing these for. And I do know that, you know, it used to be I could, I could afford, you know, I'm on a board and I get I should get Tony tickets, but I don't. I I told them, don't give me the Tony tickets, because I don't want the responsibility of seeing everything, because I know know I'm not going to be able to stand it. I only want to go to one I want to go to. Okay, that's the way I am. But the truth of the matter is, who can afford to go to the theater every night? And if you're married or dating or hopeful to get a pair of seats for, you know, Hamilton and whatever that's costing now, is this fair? I don't think it's fair. And yet, we don't do anything about it. They, occasionally, there's a lot lottery. Occasionally, some kids can come and get a ticket. I'm not talking about those kids. I'm talking about a diet. I'm talking about a healthy diet of theater. That if you paid thirty-five or forty or fifty bucks, Adele, you can see Adele's concert for fifty bucks. Now she does six of them, so she can afford to do that, which we can't do for a big classic. Okay, I get it. There's something wrong about that. And it scares the daylights out of me. And I'm pounding the desk with anger.
0: Well, we will try and do something about that for sure. I want to thank you uh, so much for this. I could go on and on for hours with you. For those of you who want more Jack, he wrote a book, which is fantastic, called Jack Be Nimble. I did. Which, uh, The Accidental Education of an Unintentional Director. That's right. Uh, It's on Amazon. We'll include a link uh, in the blog about this podcast. Do read it. Uh, get it Uh, go see charlie go see front page thank you again for doing this thank you all of you for listening and we'll see you next time don't forget this wednesday seven o'clock breaking down a broadway marketing and advertising campaign tune in get all the information on the blog theproducersperspective.com hope to see you there